we have beliefs about how we care about each other that are partially true, but we exaggerate them. So you do actually want your friends and lovers and family to not die. All else equal, you would like them to prosper and to be healthy uh, because that will also help you. Uh, in general, it helps you if your associates are more resources and more abilities and more respect in the world. However, you also care about your relative standing with them. Uh, you also care about uh, looking better than them, for example, or being thought of as better than them or winning out in contests with them for the attention of, say, others or the respect of others. So you both have a shared interest in wanting your associates to do well, and you have competitive interests in wanting to do better than them. Uh, you probably think that that second part is relatively weak and the first part is relatively strong, and that's the sort of thought that you want to project to them, which makes them feel comfortable associating with you. But if you think about it, you'll realize that, in fact, you do compete more than you'd like to admit. You are, in fact, more selfish than you'd like to admit. But you're not totally selfish in the sense that you do want them to do well as well. But that's in part because that will make you do well. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Program Life podcast, where we want our listeners, guests, and myself to learn something new. Our guest today on this episode is Robin Hansen. Robin is an associate professor of economics at George Mason University and a research associate at the Future of Humanity Institute of Oxford University. Today, we discuss his book, The Elephant in the Brain, which is one of my favorite books personally and one of the most eye-opening books I've ever read, in my opinion. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Well, nice to meet you, Yogesh. Yogesh? Yogesh? Yep. yep. Yogesh. <laughs> Yogesh, okay. Yeah, nice to meet you too, Robin. And um, I guess we can start like we, us uh, we usually do on the podcast where we start with a, a parable. And um, so the parable is one day a father and his son were playing chess in the evening. And the son said, Dad, why do you like chess so much? And his father replied, Son, it's because I always find it interesting. And the son asked, why, what's so interesting about it? And the father replied, saying that the fact that during each game, all the pieces move at their own paces, and at the end of each game, the king and the pawn go back in the same box. So my first question to you is, what does this parable mean to you and your life and also the work that you do? I don't know that I can relate to this parable at all. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yes, a chess game is a little world where stuff happens and, and, you know, you can just always be nice to see a little world. I, I think people, I mean, I like games and I, I know that people do like games. And in some sense, uh, I guess one of the nice things about a game is it's disconnected from all your other social games. <laughs> you don't have to worry so much about what you do in the game coming back to hurt you elsewhere or help you elsewhere. So you get to sort of go into what we call play mode. You get to play. So, I mean, that you know, humans and other animals have this play mode, and one of the norms of play mode is play is sort of officially disconnected from non-play. 
And so in play, you practice and do things. But, uh, you know, if you, if you accuse somebody of something in play mode or you tease them or you fight them, that's all play fighting and play teasing or play insulting even. And uh, you're not supposed to, you know, take people, uh, resent people about what they did in play mode elsewhere. And so, the, you know, that's play. Yeah. So I, I can see the point of play. And we can talk about the function of play. Um, but of course, if you spend too much time in play, uh, you know, you're not getting on with your life. <laughs> yeah. And like for me personally, like the parable, uh, the message that I take from it is that, you know, it's okay to be behind and that we all go on our own paces, like the pawns and, you know, the queens and the kings and the chessboard. And for me, like, even though that we're all in different ranks in different rankings and different social classes, in the end, we're like all human and we're all the same and we all go back in the same box. That's what I take from it. So for you, like as an author of The Elephant of the Brain, I like this book like has really inspired me and really opened my eyes to new perspectives of the world and that I still use to look like I still look, use the book and look through these perspectives through every day. Like and as I was reading the book, I could feel like my mind almost expanding and I found myself, you know, seeing different aspects of the world in completely different ways. And the main concept of the elephant in the brain is that we are all intrinsically selfish at heart and we are often blind to our own true motives. So I would like to know how you started ideating this theory or, you know, developing this theory. Uh, this is a sort of summary of a career insight for me. I'm uh, now 60 years old and I've been a social scientist for much of my life. And we social scientists know and understand many things, but some things are puzzling. There's a lot of social behavior and human behavior that over the years I've noticed our theories don't work very well for. We don't predict very well what actually seems to happen in humans. And I've decided that uh, one of the best ways to understand a lot of this puzzling behavior is to say that it's the result of our giving each other and ourselves overly generous assumptions about our motives. We have the motives we'd like to present ourselves as having and other people as having that uh, are nice motives to have, but aren't entirely true. And once you are open to that possibility of humans having hidden motives, then you can understand a lot of puzzling human behavior. So our book first explains what are these possible alternative motives we could have? And then we go through 10 areas of life and in each area of life, try to show you how other motives, alternative hidden motives can help you understand many of the puzzles in those areas. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest questions for me and personally is like, I wanted to know why we humans are so eager to look front, look good in front of others. Well, I mean, I think if you just ask people, do you want to look good in front of other people? Most people would say, yeah, I guess. Although they were more likely to say that's true of other people than themselves. <laughs> we tend to be in somewhat of denial about how much we are trying to impress the people around us. But I just don't think people don't realize how far it goes. They still, when they look at whether they went to school or go to the doctor or, or vote in politics for major areas of life, they default and switch over to assuming that they're not trying to impress people mainly in those areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, there's another book that also kind of um, looks at this concept. And it was an interesting book that I'm reading right now. And it's called The Courage to be Disliked. 
And the book follows um, like a psychology, uh, an aspect of psychology. And the author mentions the theory of separating tasks where we all have our own tasks and that we shouldn't intervene in other people's tasks. And they, um, they saw that we, they think that we assume things, um, that even things that should be other people's tasks are of our own. So like we should, we should always intervene them. And they say that other people, the, well, they say that what other people think is the task what other people think of us is their task and not something that we have control over. So what do you think of this analogy and do you agree with it? Well, humans have long had this norm that you shouldn't care very much what other people think. You should you know, want to be moral and good, but out of your own motives, not just because other people might punish you. And you shouldn't be you know, all the time trying to suck up to people and flatter them and trying just to make them love you. You know, that that's a bad people do that, or at least not good people. And that most of us believe about ourselves that we aren't trying very hard to impress other people. Sure, on all else equal, we'd like them to think highly of us, but that doesn't drive our most of our behavior. That's what we say about ourselves. And that's what we would recommend for people. Um, but of course, it's just not true. That is, people do, in fact, care a lot what other people think. And they aren't really very capable of not caring what other people think. Honestly, I think uh, just trying to make yourself not care doesn't work. I think you can more choose who the audience is that you're trying to impress. Among all the people in the world, you can focus your attention more on some of them as the ones you would most like to be impressed or to approve of what you do. But I don't actually think you can stop caring. Oh, okay. That's interesting because I was going to ask, like, if we could stop ourselves from uh, trying to look good in front of others, do you think it would be a good thing? Well, it would be, first, very different if you just do it by yourself and other people don't do it with you <laughs> versus everybody <laughs> yeah. changing together. So trying to change everybody together at once is such a huge change. It's really hard to think through. I think we'd have to know a lot more about what other changes are going to happen at the same time. Look, humans are a very social species and that's been a big part of our success. Uh, the fact that humans were so social is what made us be able to come in together in such large groups and cooperate on such large scale. It's what gave us reason, the ability to uh, reason about various abstract considerations, which has enabled enormous progress and change. All of this comes from our being such social creatures who, by their nature, do care a lot about what each other thinks. So um, I'm not even sure I can imagine. If, it, if I could maybe imagine you not caring, but I think, you know, in our society, if you don't care what other people think, that won't go very well for you. Uh, that is, people will punish you for not caring what they think. Yeah. And personally, like, I've always wondered why, like, during... When, when I was reading the book, obviously, I would like one of the biggest questions for me was I always wondered why I always put other people's like lives higher to a higher priority than my own, especially like my friends and my family. And then like, like I always used to help them even like, even if I have like, for example, my friend texts me for like, I don't know if they want help for homework and I have like the exam, an exam the day before or like the day, the next day. And I would rather help my friend instead of, you know, 
focusing on what I should be doing. And I always did that. It was like always like a habit for me. And I always wondered why I always did that. And then I realized and I reflected on myself. And after I read your book, I realized that since I'm like an only child in my family, I have the selfish motive to have someone as a brother figure, a brotherly figure, and such as like friends and stuff. And I tried to achieve this by being extremely loyal to them and always caring for them more than myself. And this really disrupted personal things for me, like focusing on myself and trying to organize and improve myself. So I realized this after and I have ever since the day I tried to control myself is this selfish desire. I've been focusing more on myself and I've been I've improved a lot and managed to start a lot of new things like this podcast. And uh, so I want to ask you, do you think it's possible to find all our true motives? Uh, we are all very complicated <laughs> and uh, we have a lot of motives. And so you could make a list of all the different motives that anybody could conceivably have. And that's a long list, but maybe you could list it out. And then if we ask, well, which of those are your motives? I mean, probably most of them contribute at some point or another. So the issue is really less what are the motives and more what the weight is. How much weight are is going to different motives? And that's the sort of thing that I think we can figure out sort of on average for people, other people. And it's harder to figure out about ourselves. And, and it will vary from moment to moment and person to person. Uh, but the strategy of our book is to look at overall human behavior and try to judge sort of the overall main motives. So the, the usual motives we say that we have do exist sometimes. Uh, and that's what allows them to be our excuses. So for example, if you say the dog ate my homework, well, you might've lied and just not done the homework and just made up the excuse that your dog ate your homework. But the reason why you would use it as an excuse is it's because the sort of thing that does happen sometimes. You wouldn't say the dragon ate my homework as an excuse because <laughs> dragons never do eat homework. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all the things we like to attribute our motives to that they would like to give as reasons, the reason that works as excuses, because sometimes that is a consideration and sometimes it's even important consideration. These aren't zeros, right? These do matter. The point is we just emphasize them more than they really deserve. We, we like to play them up. So, mm-hmm. uh, and the other motives that are our hidden motives, we do admit that they matter sometimes to some degree. We just don't realize how important they are. So if you ask, again, you ask me, can we figure out our hidden motives? I think you already know your hidden motives to a large degree. Yeah. You just don't realize how big they are. Mm-hmm. That's true. And do you think like, if everyone were to do this, it, it would be beneficial to us. Like, do you think it would be really like for my case, it was obviously like really beneficial to me to like improve on myself and be more focused on myself and, you know, getting better grades now and, you know, starting new things. And do you think it's beneficial as a whole to know your own true motives? Well, that's a key question about our book. So the idea is we were designed not to know these things evolution built you to look away from your true motives and to pretend to have other ones. It built that in you pretty deeply, actually. So that it's a very natural habit that you have. So our book is going contrary to this evolutionary 
you know, inclination you were built with. We're showing you some of your motives that you were built not to see. Now, if evolution was right about at least what's in your evolutionary interest, then we are hurting your interest by telling you about your true motives. Mm-hmm. However, there are some reasons that you might not trust this evolutionary heritage. So, for example, the world might have changed such that some of the problems have changed and you need to think more explicitly about what you do and why. It might be that your role in the world, such as a salesperson or manager, is something where it's especially important for you to understand the motives of others uh, because it's a huge, important part of your professional world. And in particular, you might be a social scientist or policymaker who uh, is trying to understand the world so that you can recommend social policies that will affect the world. Um, Those people may well need to think more explicitly about their motives. Uh, Another group is, say, nerds like me, people for whom your intuitions aren't really that good about what you should do when. Most people glide along in the social world and their intuitions tell them when to be nice and when to challenge people and all sorts of things. And they just follow their intuitions and it works pretty well. And then their intuitions also tell them what their motives are and they're wrong, but it gives them wrong guesses that are useful to them. But some of us people don't work. Our intuitions just don't work so well. We do the wrong things through when we follow our intuitions. And so for us, it can be more useful to think explicitly about what we're doing and why. Yeah, and you mentioned in an interesting parable of redwood trees in the book and how the reason why we're much more advanced than other animals is that we're locked in this evolutionary arms race kind of thing with the rest of our peers. Do you think this evolutionary arms race is helping us or hindering us? Well, it depends on what the alternative is. So, you know, races and competition can be wasteful. Uh, if you have a alternative where you would cooperate more, but most of our powerful cooperation abilities have come as a result of this competition uh, over a very long time. So I'm not sure you would wish that we hadn't been socially competitive long time ago, because then we would never have become the kind of creatures that we are. Uh, but you might well now, if you have available, even better forms of cooperation might, might, you know, lament that we uh, are still playing these competitive social games. Yeah. And I guess another really curious question for me is that do we ever care for others fully like 100% without having any ulterior motive? So we have beliefs about how we care about each other that are partially true, but we (laughs) exaggerate them. So you do actually want your friends and lovers and family to not die. Yeah. All else equal, you would like them to prosper and to be healthy uh, because that will also help you. Uh, it, in general, it helps you if your associates are more resources and more abilities and more respect in the world. However, you also care about your relative standing with them Uh, You also care about uh, looking better than them, for example, or being thought of as better than them or winning out in contests with them for the attention of, say, others or the respect of others. So you both 
have a shared interest in wanting your associates to do well, and you have competitive interests in wanting to do better than them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably think that that second part is relatively weak and the first part is relatively strong, and that's the sort of thought that you want to project to them, which makes them feel comfortable associating with you. But if you think about it, you'll realize that, in fact, you do compete more than you'd like to admit. You are, in fact, more selfish than you'd like to admit. But you're not totally selfish in the sense that you do want them to do well as well. But that's in part because that will make you do well. Yeah. And is there a way that or like, is there any situation where we care 100 percent for others without having any ulterior motive? I'm sure such situations have existed. I mean, so for example, say you're about to die in a week mm-hmm. and you take it as given as that, that that's just going to happen. Then you still care about things and other people. And then you might well make a choice, say donating money to someone else or giving someone else advice where uh, you, there's not much you can do about yourself now. Uh, although you, even then you could care about your legacy and how people will think about you later and treat you. Yeah, And so you might be wanting to, you know, help other people in that last week because then those other people will go on to think well of you and to, you know, extend and pass on your legacy. Do you think relationships, like especially the relationship between a mother and child is really strong? Do you think mothers or like parents have any selfish or like ulterior motives? Of course. Yes. I mean, you know, there just is very little in the form of absolutely pure altruism, but you shouldn't expect there to be, nor should you think it's that important that there be such things. Um, mm-hmm. I, again, you know, if you just think about consequences of the world, humans are really quite cooperative compared to most other species. We have done remarkable abilities to cooperate. We have uh, created enormous organizations, cities, firms, uh, industries, nations, uh, we have developed new technologies, new ways of getting together and organizing, new ways to help each other. We have just been remarkably effective at cooperating with each other. And it's not clear we would do much better than we do now if we were much more altruistic. So, uh, I mean, I think it's more that you might just feel bad because you thought you should be really altruistic and now you realize you aren't. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's just an obsession you should get over. I guess, do you agree with the statement that in this world, the most selfish people win? That's way too simple. (laughs) So, I mean, look, people are built, you know, with a certain range of weight on selfishness versus weight on caring about other people versus caring about their image for being nice. And there's a complicated mix of motives there and a complicated distribution of who has how much weight on each one. You know, overall, the distribution is roughly according to what evolution found out to be to the most individual advantage in the past, or at least the most genetically individual advantage. Um, So if you are different from that deviation today, that might hurt you. It might help you depending on if the current world is different from the past world or where you are in some random outcome. Um, And so it's just really hard to say much in general about that. We can say some specific things about say the kinds of particular kinds of cooperation and, whether the incentives are stronger or weaker for those today than in the past. But if you, just at this high level of more or less selfish, uh, you have to realize just how complicated selfishness is. Like, so for example, 
you yeah. might pass on your genes and from an evolutionary point of view be a success, but you might die tomorrow as a result. Is that selfish or not? <laughs> well, it depends on whether you're focused on you or your genes. Um, you know, that's an ambiguity in what it means to be selfish. Yeah. And I was, I was going to ask you that like, one of my questions were like, what is the true meaning of being selfish? Like what is, what does it actually mean to be selfish? Like, cause the book really twisted the meaning of selfish. Like what do we actually consider as being selfish and what do you think about it? So as a practical matter in our world, we have a number of norms about people's behavior and we label some of those norms as sort of preventing selfishness. And some of the norms are sort of more just in general in terms of kinds of selfishness. And so these norms, in some sense, define what selfishness means for us in terms of behaviors. So, you know, it might be if there's food to share and I save some of the food for myself and I don't share it, well, that's selfish. Well, in that context, it's about wanting food for yourself versus food for somebody else. Or if, say, there was a, a sporting contest you were in and you exaggerated how well you did and even you know lied about how well somebody else did, well, that would be being selfish from the point of view of enhancing your image or reputation in the sport, right? So each of these norms we have is associated with a particular kind or aspect of selfishness. And if we add those that together, we could get a picture of what people tend to mean by selfishness. But there is no official definition. The universe doesn't have such things. <laughs> You know, these are concepts that are useful to us, you know, in a particular area where we use them. And you have to go look at those usage areas to figure out what they mean. I feel like the book also talks about how selfishness can also be good and bad and um, how we have created, you know, as you said, social norms to keep people in their place. And for things like, you know, theft, murder or like actual we have actual laws against that. But like more subtle things like, you know, as you said, um cutting in a queue or like, you know, bragging about your uh, sports competition. We all have norms that take care of things. And do you think these social norms have kept people in place in this era? Well, norms exist in our era and they do affect behavior and they are probably on the whole positive effects. <laughs> so uh, on the whole, humans are gaining from our norms and we, it allows us to be more cooperative with each other, even though that many of the norms also have substantial negative costs. I guess what would, I'm curious on what the world would look like if we didn't have these uh, like minimal social norms. Like if we just had laws, no like social norms as in like it would be bad to cut the queue or anything. Well, we'd probably need a lot stronger laws even more laws, and we'd be paying more attention to enforcing the laws. That is, norms and laws are substitutes in many ways. So before law, say 10,000 years ago, we just had norms. And humans, compared to other animals, use norms for maybe a million years to uh, you know, moderate our behavior and to cooperate. And then as we moved into larger societies than we had been in before, instead of a group, a band of 30 people, we might be in a village area of a thousand people. In those larger areas, our norm mechanisms didn't work as well. And our gossip mechanisms that we used to uh, manage the norm mechanisms, those also didn't work as well. And so as a result, we uh, had to develop law, or we did develop law. And law is a substitute for norms. And it, we designed law in particular in order to 
fix some of the key problems with the way gossip and norms have been enforced before. Um, so if we dropped norms now, we would then have to expand the use of law and legal like mechanisms to substitute for the norms. I guess going back to the topic of like this era, do you think technology on the rise since technology is on the rise, has it been easier to pursue our hidden motives? I don't, it's not obviously easier. It's just, you know, different. <laughs> so I guess one of the main things is that we have these intuitions about how to behave and, and we are sort of in denial about our motives and these patterns of behavior aren't very adaptive to how the world changes. <laughs> so we can have dysfunctional behavior where you know, doing things according to the hidden motives is actually messing things up. But because we aren't very aware of what we're doing or why, we aren't very able to adapt our behavior to the new changed world. So it's not necessarily that we're more or less selfish. It's this that we are sort of more on autopilot and, you know, our, our behavior is breaking. Yeah. And I feel like techno since technology is on the rise, we're even more social now. And where I think our brains are evolving even more and becoming even more complex. Do you think so? I don't know if they're more complex. I mean, we, we've, we've seen many ways in which over time, actually humans minds are getting a little less capable and weaker. So apparently brain size was more maximal, maybe 10,000 years ago. And over the farming era, brain, human brain sizes have declined plausibly because the farming era life was less mentally taxing than forager life was just before farming. And in the modern world, many kinds of technology makes things easier for brains. Like we are learning, say, fewer, memorizing fewer things because we can look them up, uh, you know, like phone numbers or things like that. And, you know, those are ways in which the world is getting easier for our minds. Uh, in some other ways, it's getting harder, but uh, mostly it's just changing. And so uh, the tasks that our world makes us deal with now are different. So, for example... You know, some kinds of IQ scores seem to have been going up over the last century. And plausibly part of that's because, well, our world is a lot more abstract now. Abstract reasoning is much more important now, abstract categories, than it was a century or two ago. And so we've switched our mental ability training to uh, the kind of world we now live in. Yeah. And I like I heard about like how before, since, you know, we like a million years ago or something, when our like we as humans, we worried about more of what we like, we worried about survival and like how we had to water food and basic things like shelter, ba basic needs. And now it's more or less that we humans have almost, almost everything. And we have food, we have, you know, we have the internet, we have technology helping us. So don't you think that our brain, like, as you said, our brains do um, change and adapt to this and actually think bigger because things are being done for us now. So, and I guess um, what I also realized is that um, finding other people's um, selfish and true motives have really been a life-changing principle for me in life. And uh, it relates to one of my favorite quotes by uh, Epictetus, who is a Stoic philosopher, and he says that it is not events that disturb people, it is their judgments concerning them. And we often think that our negative feelings and emotions are caused by external events, but it's not 
but it's actually caused by the story that we tell ourselves and about that event that makes us feel bad. And a real life example of mine is how I used to, you know, uh, have, I guess, a hatred on a guy in my class and how he always made fun of me in class and how he asked weird questions about me. And, you know, and I got really angry one time. And um, as he just asked a question of uh, my dating life and if and everyone started giggling. But then after a couple of days, when I was in a cafe with my best friend, he told me that the guy hates being alone and he wants someone or he wants more friends and he wants to be popular, which is his selfish motive. So I now I tell myself a different story about that event in my head, which makes me a lot more happier and I'm, I'm more mentally, like I'm much more mentally happy, happy now. So do you think... Uh, knowing about other people's selfish desires help us. So knowing about your own selfish desires can also help you um, or not, uh, depending on, again, the context, as we talked before, you, you mentioned happiness. And so I guess it's, you know, worth noting. Many people have noticed that if you just wanted to be happy, then one of the most reliable ways to do that is to lower your expectations, to be more grateful for the things you have as opposed to being ambitious and envious of the things that you don't have. And yeah. most people, when they realize this, when they're told this, or they've noticed it for themselves, they can see that, yes, I would be happier if I lowered my expectations. And they decide to themselves, but no, I don't want to lower my expectations. <laughs> that is, I care about other things more than happiness. Um, partly, I would rather be less happy and be more successful because uh, I want to be respected. I want to be liked. I want to be, you know, have many sorts of things in the world and those things won't happen as much if I'm happier and more satisfied with what I have. So, um, you know, that shows you like right there in the story you told yourself, you might've said to myself, well, look, if I don't care what this guy thinks, then I won't get angry at him. And, and, you know, then I can be happier, but it doesn't mean you, you want that. You might rather be angrier and then figure out how to respond with this anger in a way that helps you win in this conflict with this other person. Uh, mm -hmm. People often go that direction with uh, this insight. So, um, you know, in some sense, understanding other people in general can help you predict them better. If you assume that somebody was just doing this out of pure spite, for example, as opposed to, you know, some way in which they are helping themselves, then you might not be able to predict what they do as well and respond to them as, as accurately. Um, but you know, there's also ways in which you gain from misunderstanding people so that you can credibly claim to people that you really did think he's malicious and that look, it doesn't look his behavior consistent with being malicious and don't they hate that? And won't they join your side against this other person? Mm -hmm. And I guess you also talk about in the book about the two kinds of people, calculators and emoters and how calculators are the people who manage their generosity with a spreadsheet or like calculator, obviously. And emoters are people who just simply can't help being moved uh, to people right in front of them. So I guess, do you think there are other types of people or are there just calculators and emoters? And well, this isn't so much about the types of people that there are, but more about the types of people that, that you're looking for when you're interpreting charity or help. So that's in the charity section. And so the idea is there is that when you do nice things for other people to be charitable, you give money or your time or assistance in some ways, 
other people around you watch that and then they interpret what you do and give you more or less credit as, as a nice, generous person, depending on what you do and how you do it. And so talking about calculators or motors in the, in the context of that interpretation they make of you. I mean, the world is really complicated. People are complicated. There's a thousand different kinds of people, of course. Uh, but the point is, in that context, when people look at you, they are, to some substantial degree, focused on whether you are just reacting to what you see and that you help when you see some need and you don't really think about it. That is, they're actually comforted and like you better when they think of you as a person who just emotionally reacts to seeing a need and then just doing something about it in a pretty knee-jerk sort of way without calculating how best to help or who most needs help. So they are actually less admiring of you or less trusting and, and less wanting to be associated with you if you are really calculating in that context. And so that's a puzzle if you just thought the purpose of charity was to help and the purpose of people admiring charity was to get people to help. But you see, the purpose of people admiring charity is not actually to get people to help. What they're doing is wondering whether you would help them. So when someone looks at you being charitable, what they like about it is the possibility that if you were around them and they needed help, that you might help them. And so seeing that you just see somebody around you and help who needs help and just do something about it just directly because that's the way you feel makes them think that if they were in need of help and they were in your face and you could see that they needed help, then you would help them. That's reassuring. If, on the other hand, you're the sort of person who looks all around the world for who needs the most help in the world and figures out how to best help that person in the world in the most direct and efficient way possible then they don't have much of a reassurance that you will help them because they probably won't meet that standard. They're not going to be the person in the world who most needs your help. Mm-hmm. And helping yeah. them is not going to be the most effective thing you could possibly do. Mm-hmm. So they don't admire that charitable attitude, which most help the people who most in need because that doesn't help them. We are selfish about not only being charitable, we are selfish in how we admire charity in others. Do you think it would be similar in the politics kind of perspective, especially at this time? Well, so um, our story in politics, just like with charity, is to say our usual claim about our motives is that we just want to help in charity. We're just trying to help people in need. In politics, we're trying to help the nation or the state or the city, you know, make better policy to help everybody. And we'd say that in politics, our stronger motive is to help our side. So we see ourselves as allied with some political side, some political faction, and maybe several different factions. And we want to show those factions that we are on their side. We are loyal to them. And that's the main thing that affects our lives because people around us are much more eager to associate with us if they think we are on their side and loyal to their side. And our actual influence on who gets elected and what they do is far weaker and matters less to us than just showing the people around us that we are with them and on their side. So if people in, say, a certain side have a belief that a certain policy is going to help their side, we want to show our support for that policy, even if we believed that it wouldn't actually help our side, that maybe that policy is counterproductive, it's going to hurt us. 
But once we see that enough people on our side all really want to support that policy, then we follow the line and we support it too, so we can show we're with them. Yeah, and do you think since like the main thing is that we're all intrinsically selfish, do you think is there a good leader? Is there like any good leader that can possibly lead us in a right direction or anything? Well, there's no perfect leader. So, uh, but that doesn't mean there can't be a good leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have many different agents in our lives. Uh, agent being someone who serves us supposedly. And one of the basic problems in the world is how to keep agents on your side. You hire somebody to repair your car. How do you know that they will try to do a good job in repairing your car? You hire a doctor who gives you medical advice. How do you know that they're going to give you medical advice? And then, of course, if you pick a political leader to lead you, how do you know that they'll lead you well? And so, yes, there's always the temptation that if there was a choice between you and them and and their personal interests, they may well choose themselves. And that's why you try to structure their context and incentives so that they have better incentives to help you. And it's quite often possible to give people good incentives to help you. Uh, but you have to pay attention to it and try to make sure that you do give them good incentives. So a leader, for example, who can't really help themselves very much in terms of like favoring their, their relatives or friends with corrupt deals, uh, maybe what you try to give their strong incentives is maybe to get, say, reelected. And in order to get reelected, they need to do well for you. So if you can judge how well they have done for you, then at the re- election time, you can reelect them only if they've done a good job. At which point, they'd want to give you an ins- they'd want to do a good job in order to get reelected. So uh, it comes down to what are the incentives you give people who are going to be selfish in many ways. Uh, so that they w- their, their selfish interests become more aligned with your interests so that you can have a better confidence that they will help you. You also talk about a section of laughter in the book. And do you think, like, as you said in the book, where, you know, like 50% of the people who are saying the joke laugh at their joke? And um, I guess, do you think this can relate to other emotions? Certainly, a lot of emotions, probably pretty much all emotions, are communications devices. Yeah. That is, uh, if you look at most animals who are not very social, their face doesn't show much emotion. Their voice doesn't show much emotion. And that's not because they don't have things they care about. It's because they don't need to show what they feel to others. And so they don't necessarily need to have distinct, clear emotions that they show. So we humans have different expressions and different emotions that we express through our voice and our body language and uh, the words we say, etc. And that's because we are trying to communicate those emotions to the people around us. So then the function of many of our emotions is communication. It is to present ourselves among the people around us. So for example, we may, well, if we're scared, show fear. And that may be so that people around us can realize there's danger and share our fear with us and maybe even help us uh, in our danger. Uh, That's all very useful um, if we are in a social world where we are around other people and want to help them and have them help us. You also talked about consumption in the book. I would like you to elaborate on consumption and how it's hidden motive relates to hidden motives. So I should you know, mention that 
each of our chapters in our book has a basic structure. First, we say, you know, what in this area of life is what we think of as our usual motive? And then what are some puzzles with respect to that? And then we offer an alternative motive that better explains the puzzles. So in the section on consumption, we say most people, when they buy things like a car or a shirt or a phone, will focus on features of that that are practical in their lives as the explanation for why they bought it. And we know, in fact, that many people actually buy things with the purpose of impressing the people around them. So this is relatively widely known, that people want people to admire their phone or to admire their car or their shirt, and that they choose these things in substantial part in order to impress the people around them. Uh, So this is an example where we're all sort of generally aware that this is a substantial effect, especially in other people, but we don't tend to point to it when we're talking about our own behavior and explaining why I say I bought that phone. We might focus on its lifespan or its screen size or battery life um, as opposed to, you know, the social image that that phone projects for us. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this helps us not just understand what purchases we make, but also what kind of advertising is targeted at us. So if you notice that a lot of advertising doesn't actually say that much about the product involved, uh, which is puzzling because you might have thought they spent all this money, here's this product they're trying to sell, and they don't really tell you much about its price or its features. Like a car ad might just show a car winding through some hills with a beautiful woman sitting next to somebody in the car. And, you know, we might go, well, how is that selling me on the car? Uh, and so as we discuss in the book, well, if you buy a car because of how it impresses other people, then you need to believe that other people will be impressed by the car. And so you need to believe that they've even heard of the car and know anything about it. Mm-hmm. And so advertisement is often to convince you that other people have heard about the car and that they have a certain image or impression of the car. And so that if you want to project that image, you need to have that car. So we give the example in the book about a beer that's advertised with pictures of a beach. And you might say, well, how does that sell the beer? Any beer could be on the beach. How is this an especially beach appropriate beer? But in contrast, you might say, well, if you just want to project the image of being a beach person, knowing that lots of other people have seen this ad, if you pick this beer and hold it and other people are standing around you, they see that beer label and they associate it with the beach and now they associate you with the beach. And that's all there needs to be to it. The beer doesn't actually need to have any other direct association with the beach other than the fact that the advertisements created the association and that allows you to use that association as a way to advertise something about yourself. And. I guess uh, going back to the start of the book where you say that people are judging us all the time, is there a reason why we judge other people? So humans are in large social groups and we cooperate. And one of the main mechanisms that we cooperate is social norms. Norms are rules about what you should do or should not do in particular situations. And because norms are so important among each other, And our groups are so important to us that as the groups around us matter more than nature does, uh, it's the main thing that affects how well we do in our lives, we very much want the people around us to think well of us and not think badly of us. So we are eager to avoid any possible accusation of violating norms. And of course, we are also eager to accuse our rivals when we identify them of violating norms. So thinking about what we're doing and what other people are doing in terms of whether it could be seen as a norm violation is very central to our mind. And in fact, your conscious mind is more plausibly a press secretary than a president or king of your mind. 
Sure, somewhere in their mind, someone makes decisions, but it's not you. <laughs> the conscious you who's aware of just the conscious thoughts in your mind, that you is really more of a press secretary whose job it is to justify you to other people. So you're all the time looking at what you're doing and what other people are doing and trying to ask yourself, how can I justify what I'm doing? Explain it in some way that other people would accept that explanation as me not breaking the rules, not violating norms. Mm -hmm. And that's why you don't know why you do things. <laughs> Your job is not to figure out what you actually did for what actual reason. Your job is to spin a good story. So just like the president's press secretary doesn't actually know what the president does for why, but when given an asked question or even an accusation, the president's job is to come up with a story to excuse it, to make it understandable and even admirable if possible, so as to make the president look good. And that's the job of your conscious mind, to try to make yourself look good. And I guess I wanted to also ask you more um, personal questions, as in when you were coming up with the um, theory of the elephant in the brain, was it obvious to you when you started or did you, uh, how did you stumble upon the answer? So I am fundamentally a nerd. Mm -hmm. And first I went into uh, engineering and then physics and then philosophy of science and then computer science. And I didn't switch into social science until late in my life. I uh, started graduate school in social science at the age of 34 with two, two kids age zero and two. So it took me a long time to get around to social science. And then even then I took a relatively mathematical, you know, approach that a, a nerdy sort of mathy person would do and uh, accepted the sort of the standard formulaic formula and sort of theories about things and the standard way that social scientists applied things. So at the end of my PhD, uh, I applied for jobs and I, you know, I had some interviews, but I only got a job offer for a postdoc, which was a health policy postdoc. And that was at the University of California, Berkeley, sponsored by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And in that postdoc, I hang out with political scientists and so sociologists. And it was a two-year program. And for the first six months, we took all these classes on just health and health policy and medicine. And so that was a chance to immerse myself in a particular area of the world. And instead of doing more abstract mathematical models, which is what I had done before that, I was immersing myself in the details of health and medicine. And looking at those details, they just did not make much sense in terms of the standard theory that I had learned. The standard theory of health and medicine is, well, you know, people are usually healthy, but sometimes they get sick. If they get sick, well, they could use some help from doctors, but doctors are expensive and doctors also are hard to judge. And so therefore we have insurance to pay for it and we have regulation to, uh, to judge the quality. And then people, you know, use doctors to get healthy and that's what doctors are for. And in fact, medicine just doesn't fit that picture very well. Uh, and if that's the picture you have about medicine, then I'm telling you that you have a surprise in front of you here. And so, you know, that was my first clear you know, stick in my face that the world does not fit our theories very well. And so over the course of that postdoc, I, trying to think about that, I entertain the hypothesis that maybe medicine isn't about making people healthier. Maybe it's about something else. Maybe it's about showing that we care about each other. And that could make sense of the number of the puzzles that otherwise I couldn't make sense of. And once my eyes were open to that possibility that medicine could be 
explained by something very different than people usually say, then I was able to look in other areas and ask, could this apply elsewhere? And I started to see that elsewhere, yes, you can understand other puzzles in similar terms. I guess if you could turn back and talk to your 18-year-old self, um, would you mention about you know, selfish desires and more about the, the hard truth of the world? Would you, what, what would the best advice from your book, what, what would you give the best advice so, from your book? Um, so there's, there's a key fact that we were built to be relatively ignorant about this stuff. There's another fact I haven't talked about, which is that it seems like young people are more strongly built to presume these more idealistic views of themselves and other people. And with time, people, as they get older, are more willing to take what they call a cynical view of the world, a view, a less favorable view of people's motives. So that creates this question, why are people more idealistic when young? And, uh, you know, is it in their interest to be so? <laughs> So if we believe that on average evolution produced people to be unaware of this because it's in their interest, then we might expect, well, maybe if evolution made people, young people even more so, then that was because it was even more important for them to be idealistic. And there's reasons why that might make sense. So early in life, you are forming relationships, then later in life, you draw on those relationships. And when you're forming relationships, you're trying to convince the other people around you that you'd be a good relationship partner. And uh, in order to do that, Projecting idealism is often attractive in, in relationship partners. Whereas later in life, when you have these relationships you're drawing on, it's often more strategic to be more cynical and to basically implicitly threaten your relationship partners that if they don't treat you better, you're going to leave them. Uh, so this suggests that young people are more resistant for a good reason to hearing about these more cynical theories, which then should make me and you more cautious about when and who we tell these things to. Uh, I'm not going to recommend just generically forcing everybody to hear this stuff. You know, mm -hmm. I'm going to say people who are inclined to think about this stuff, it should be available. So if you ever meet an 18 year old who is telling you, you know what? The world doesn't make sense to me. Look at all these weird things. And parents seem to be so unhappy, you know, or the world seems to have so much war. I don't understand. Can you help me understand that world? That's a person who's maybe now more open to hearing an explanation that might not be favorable. And so I want there to be a book that those people can have and read if they are inclined to find out. But that's different than wanting to shove it down their throats. Mm -hmm. And so for this hypothetical 18-year-old you give me, it matters a lot how smart they are and how curious they are and how much they already see that the world doesn't make that much sense in terms of the way people usually talk about it. And if they are honestly puzzled and want to know, then at that point, yes, I would give them elephant in the brain. What would you say is the most important thing that you've learned in your life? And what was it like before learning it and after learning it? I think it's really hard to know the most important things um, because, you know, just the whole class of important things are all pretty important, important enough that you learn them and that you use them. And that once they've integrated into your life and practice that you forget about them. And so... Honestly, the most important things you learned are probably things you learned really early on that were just like really obvious, like, you know, don't walk across the street and you get hit by a car. <laughs> but they're so easy to learn and most everybody so reliably learns them that by now it's not, we don't worry much about teaching people them because they're just going to learn, right? So, you know, if I say what's the most important thing I've learned that I want to pass on to the world, 
Well, now that's a different criteria. It's about, well, what have I learned that other people have not learned and that they might benefit from my telling them? Yeah. Um, so certainly the elephant in the brain insights are some of the most important things I would have to say, uh, but others are plausibly equally important. I have another book called The Age of M about, about the future and what it would be like when brain emulations show up. And I do think that's important too, because that may well happen and getting an uh, insight on ahead of time would be important and useful. I also have other work I've done on sort of alternative institutions and how we could make our world much better uh, based on prediction markets and other mechanisms, uh, vouching. And I think those are enormously valuable. And I hope to write more about to convince people to listen and think about those things. And again, those are very valuable to the world and hardly anybody else seems to understand or talk about them. And so I feel, uh, you know, especially important if I focus on what the world is neglecting and I can go tell them about that. So there's what's just important in any one person's life to know. And that's just a different standard than what's important for me to focus on to tell the world. And for that second standard, it's much more about what do I know that's unique what do I know that the world is not paying enough attention to that I could make a big difference on? Since we're coming towards the end of the one hour mark, I would like to first thank you for coming on to the show. And it's been a great honor having you here. And uh, my last question would be, I guess, like, what do you think would be something that you think is true, but almost nobody agrees with you on? <laughs> well, I mean, those are things I have been telling you. <laughs> Uh, but you know, it's, there's nothing that's almost nobody agrees with me. If, if almost nobody agrees with me, then I'm just basically not going to believe it either. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. most of the things I might believe that many other people don't believe, I will need a reason to continue to believe that. So, uh, so for example, there might be some issues where hardly anybody else has thought about the question. And I might say, well, look, I've thought about the question. If you hear me and think it through, then you'll probably agree with me. And that's why I'm willing to continue holding on to it. But if I believe that even after hearing me and listening to my arguments, you would still almost surely disagree. Well, I would have to <laughs> recant that. That would be a bad thing to believe. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it would be crazy to sort of believe something that almost everybody would disagree with you if they heard your evidence and arguments. So the sorts of things that I feel more confident in agreeing and believing, even if most people disagree, is where, say, I'm an expert in the area and the other experts who, who have studied the area, they agree with me. <laughs> but all the rest of the world has this presumption against it and, and hasn't bothered to listen to our arguments. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So I'd say, you know, some of the institutional changes I would like to push are like that. Some of the insights I have into the future in terms of what will happen in the long run are somewhat like that. And, you know, I don't necessarily... When I say, you know, I give you the arguments and do you agree with me? I don't need 100% of people to agree with me or even 50%, but I, I probably need more than 10%, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. I, I need a fair percentage of the people who hear yeah. my argument to agree with me. Otherwise, I should drop that belief. <laughs> it's just wrong. Thank you again for coming on to the show. And it's been a great honor talking to you. Nice to meet you, Yogesh. Yep. Nice to meet you too. Thank you so much. <laughs>